Our guest today is someone with a unique journey that has crossed the fairways of the golf course through the corporate halls of finance, all the way to the personal growth field of executive coaching. Meet Tony Schaefer, a man who spent his early years engrossed in sports and interestingly, in the intricate world of finance. Growing up in a space where posters of his favorite footballers and golfers adorned the walls, Tony showed an affinity for both sports and the realm of numbers from a young age. With a distinguished career in finance, Tony has walked a tightrope of corporate responsibility, dealing with balance sheets, forecasts, and all things numbers. But his journey didn't stop there. Recognizing the potential to have an even greater impact, Tony transitioned into the realm of coaching. His mission? To guide finance executives and business leaders to reach their full potential. Tony brings a wealth of expertise, real-world experience, and powerful insights into the nuanced world of finance, leadership, and personal growth. From navigating professional challenges to fostering a healthy work-life balance and cultivating a growth mindset, Tony has empowered numerous professionals to thrive in their roles. My name is Danielle Keevan. Let's uncover the hidden stories of finance professionals as they navigate money, investment, and growth. Let's look into the person behind the CFO title. Let's go beyond the budget. Before we get into the episode, if you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review of the podcast wherever you listen. It helps out the whole Paddle Studios team tremendously and lets us continue to uncover the hidden stories of CFOs. Can you describe your childhood bedroom? Was it shared? Did you have your own? What kind of posters did you have on the wall? Um, who were the footballers or golfers you were looking up to? So I had my own had my own bedroom. Um, predominantly, there's predominantly f- f- footballers on the wall. I used to get a, a football magazine when I was younger. It was called Shoot, where I'd basically, and you'd have like articles and predominantly pictures and I probably would be sticking those pictures on my my wall my my childhood as a child I, I was very into football and there's a quite a famous Scottish footballer called Kenny Dalglish who was my idol growing up so I probably recommend categorically but um, remember categorically but I think I probably had a picture of him amongst other footballers on my wall and and maybe a few other pop stars as well possibly I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. What kind of pop stars would you have on a wall? Well, for some reason, I seem to recollect Tiffany. I think she had one hit. I think we're alone now. I seem to recollect. I think I might have had a picture of her in my wall as well when I was younger. But don't quote me on that. Or maybe you are because it's in a podcast. But, but I think it was predominantly, maybe the odd pop stars, but predominantly uh, football footballers. What did your parents do for work? My dad was a financial advisor and my mum was the home housewife so she looked after. I was one of three kids and an older, I've got an older brother it's a couple of years older than me and a younger sister who's probably about five or six years younger than me so I was the middle child. Were you guys close? Were you, was, your, was it a close family? Pretty close. We did, we did quite a lot as a family growing up so yeah quite a lot of family values are quite important and it's, it's certainly something that I try and install to my I've got three children who are pretty close in age. I've got my oldest is 13, my middle one's 12 and my old, my youngest is almost 11 so they're pretty close in age with three under three. You know whilst they've got their own friends and it's really important for them to have their own friends obviously I do think it's important for them to have, want to have good relationships with each other as well so yeah that's certainly something we do quite a lot as a family my wife and 
my three kids and I. What kind of subjects did you gravitate towards in school? What I predominantly, when when I got later in my school life where there was a bit more choice, I gravitated towards things like economics and accounting because I was always quite interested in business and they were quite business, they were obviously business related subjects. I was naturally quite good at maths, I was quite naturally quite good at numbers. I was probably more logical than creative. Being naturally quite good at maths and being interested in business it became things like economics and accounting became things that I naturally gravitated to, towards. And what did you want to be when you grew up? At one point, I think I wanted to be a professional golfer. I mean, I probably, I don't know how realistic, well, I, I know it probably was never that realistic, but I was always quite, I quite enjoyed golf, quite enjoyed playing golf. And I was reasonably, I was, I was not bad for at quite a young early age, I guess. I always... And I watched a lot of golf. There was quite a lot of golf in Scotland. I used to go to um, the Open Championship quite regularly. And I always, it was something I always aspired that I found sort of almost a bit of the envy of those golfers walking, walking beautiful scenery, playing a nice relaxing game and getting suitably compensated for it. And it was always quite something that would definitely be quite aspirational. But I don't think it was ever anything serious. I wasn't that good and I never took it that seriously to really pursue that. It definitely is something that I would have loved to have done. I won't share my handicap with you because I know that golf is a, a sport that many can play, but fewer, you know, elite. And I'm wondering more, so was it like, I think you kind of answered the question there about what drew you to this game as a kid. Was it, it was just like that serenity sort of thing that you felt like you saw your professional golfers? I think, I mean, my dad was very interested in golf and think got me a set of golf clubs maybe when I was maybe six or seven. So I played, started playing golf at an early age and had reasonably good hand-eye coordination. I took to it relatively easily in comparison to my brother who didn't have very good hand-eye coordination and sort of struggled with it. And I, I enjoyed playing football a lot as well, playing like, you know, soccer. But I just found there was quite a nice contrast. One was a bit calmer, whereas football was a bit more, felt a lot more competitive, but also had that team dynamic to it, which I enjoyed. They were quite different, but I guess in answer to your question, what drew me to it, I think it was just playing it from an early age and being able to be outdoors and, and do act, do something active which I quite enjoyed. And do you remember, like, was there a moment when, I know that with most of these things there's often like a, it's, it happens over a period of time. Was there maybe a moment where like you stopped dreaming as a kid of like those aspirational sort of things and started to become a little bit more real about like, oh no, I want to go this like business route or this finance route. Yeah, I'm sure there probably was. I mean, I think probably quite early on, I was always probably quite someone who was quite liked a bit of certainty and liked to almost, you know, when I was at school, maybe it was probably not my primary school, definitely not, but probably midway through my secondary school I started to realize the importance of getting good grades and the import because I was thinking right if I you know in reality I'm not going to and I think probably at that point I'd even stopped about thinking about becoming a professional golfer but it was like right okay in three four years time I want to go to university and then from that I know that in order to get a good job I'll need to get a good degree and I think probably, you know, maybe midway through secondary school, I was probably in that position whereby I started to realise that 
I would have to work hard. Yeah. The subjects I was going to pick would be would be important because it would be if I didn't, I wouldn't get the good grades, and therefore I wouldn't be able to go to the university or do the subject that I want to be able to do, which would detrimentally impact my opportunity to get the sort of career, the sort of job that I wanted. So I think probably relatively, I don't know, maybe when I was probably maybe 13, 14, 15, I started, I became less of a dreamer. It's interesting, especially hearing that it seems like that dreaming has come back a little bit in a very good way, as we'll talk about a little bit later with like your meditation and with just like kind of that mindfulness approach that you take. We'll get into that, Bill. And when you were sitting in your seat at Hutchinson's Grammar School, where did your mind go? Were you an attentive student or did your mind wander? I think I probably was attentive when I was interested, whereas actually if I wasn't particularly interested, I struggled to, there would probably be quite a lot of mind wandering. And I'd probably see that in my oldest child as well. I can sort of see some of the things that, you know, her, she can be very focused and very knowledgeable about something she's interested in but if she's not interested in it then she's not interested in her mind will wander and I think I was probably quite like. And it seems like you had a financial focus early on in your career getting a BA in accounting and business law from the University of Stashclyde. I'm hoping I'm seeing it right. Strathclyde. Strathclyde is in Glasgow. Yeah. And what drove you toward that and subsequently away from golf? I think it was that point about You know, it was a very good, it was quite a highly commended business school. And it was that opportunity to have, to pursue what I felt would be more, would be a good business degree, be a good solid foundation to move me in my career. And I believed at that time, as I was sort of saying, trying to map out my career quite early on, I felt doing a degree in accounting and law, a business focused degree would be a good foundation on which to build if I was wanting to pursue a career in the business world, which which I which I very much felt that I was. And do you feel like you talk now you talk a lot about mindset? And I'm wondering if if you picture yourself back then when you were attending Strathclyde, do you feel like you had a good mental approach? while you were attending university? Like, did you feel like you had a, struggling with the right words to put it, but just like that that mental model that you talk so much about now, do you feel like that started early on? Like, was there a pivotal moment where that like kicked in? No, if I'm being honest, I was probably quite oblivious to the mindset back then. I think it was just, I thought I was the way I was and I thought, and probably had a pretty fixed mindset whereby it wasn't, I didn't think I could learn or didn't think I could learn new things. So maybe I didn't have a fixed mindset, but I was probably quite, I just wasn't really aware of, you know, my my thinking was my thinking. My inner critic was my inner critic. The way I thought and approached things was very much the way it was. And I probably, I didn't really think actually is this helping me or is this hindering me i was probably not particularly conscious of the power that actually your mind can really have in terms of you know holding you back from from what you want to achieve i mean i obviously was conscious of the power of the of being able to learn and having that capacity to learn but in terms of the more emotional aspects of things and where you maybe were encountering challenges i would maybe just maybe i would just hold back from pursuing them and wouldn't necessarily really think that much about it unless I actually stepped back and reflected. But I probably back then did very little reflection. And what sort of extracurricular activities were you up to while attending Strathclyde? 
So I used to do, but played quite a lot of golf back then, and I played quite a lot of football. I was playing quite a lot of football. I played football probably three or four times a week, which was good. I mean, it was, it was quite good, kept me active, kept me fit. And, and I was sort of saying I quite enjoyed that, the competitive aspect of it. And did you have a job that you wanted to get right out of college? It looks like you dove headfirst with your role at Grant Thornton. It was, I was probably very much following that traditional route that you go to university, you get your degree and it's an accounting and business degree. And naturally, the natural progression from that is to go and get a job at a firm of chartered accountants. Well, that was one of the natural routes and that's the route that I went down and I felt that would help me in a good foundation in terms of my future career and being becoming a qualified chartered accountant would give me the support. It would it, it'd be a good grounding but also it gave me quite a bit of credibility as I pursued my career and, and, and if I wanted to continue up that traditional corporate ladder, as it were. And do you feel like you nailed your first interview at Grant Thornton? I think I probably, I mean, looking at, I can't remember it specifically, but I think I probably was reasonably confident and tried to approach those things in, in hopefully quite a conversation-like manner. So yeah, I think, I don't know whether I nailed it, but I think I probably came across as someone who's quite passionate, who wanted to do the work, but the same token was hopefully slightly curious and intrigued as to what the role would be, as opposed to someone who was purely focused on telling them what I think they wanted to hear. And do you feel like, so it sounds like this, I think I know the answer to this question, but was this like everything to you at the time? Did you think like, I have to get this job or like, I'm, I'm going to be a complete failure? Yeah, I think there probably was an element of, there was probably an element, again, coming back to that certainty, there was definitely an element. I mean, they were they were a pretty big firm and it was a good opportunity. And I guess there was that very much, I need that certainty. And if I don't get this job, then what is the next? Probably an element of fear, being driven driven by fear to a certain extent. If I don't secure this, what what, what does the future and clearly in hindsight looking back something else would have arisen and and who's to say if I, if I hadn't gone in a different path it wouldn't have been equally as beneficial who knows but I guess at that time being in it then I probably felt yes this is really important that I get this that I, that I secure this job and pursue a good foundation to my career and which thing to build things on. If we're, we're fast forwarding a little bit here, but you've had this very diverse experience in your financial journey, whether it's like starting out in corporate finance, you've worked for a supermarket chain, for a media conglomerate, brand and design. Is there one of those jobs that offered like a particularly challenging problem that you had to figure out? Like, and I'm thinking more in terms of like industry specific problem or something like that. I learned a lot in my time within the marketing communications where I worked for um, as a finance director within Ogilvy who are a large marketing agency. And, and the way those businesses were run, the, the finance directors or the CFOs had quite a lot of involvement really in the business. It wasn't very, it wasn't, it was, it was far more than just someone who would sit there and cut costs or sit behind spreadsheets and look at the numbers. And you really had to understand the businesses. And certainly when I first started in there, we were going through a bit of a recession. I think it was around the time where Lehman Brothers had just collapsed, so there was a lot of um, wider economic challenges. We were a lot more susceptible, and there was many businesses were susceptible to this, but because we were heavily reliant on discretionary spend, 
we were, you know, from our clients, a lot of our clients were really holding back and it was having a, a real impact on us. And as a result, we had to make cutbacks quite early on in my time there. But it was really important to me and it was really, I had to quite quickly get a grasp of, right, okay, if we were making cutbacks, what what impact we still needed people to deliver the work. And, what, and, and we were very project-based. One of the businesses, the first business that I was looking after, so it was very much more challenging because there wasn't as much visibility of income in t- uh, as there may be been if we'd be if we had more retainers. So that became challenging to really understand the business and the intricacies of that of, of what was a, of a project-based branding agency at the time to really understand right we're going to cut costs. What's the potential impact? If we cut too deeply and the work comes back quickly and it became quite it became quite clear to me that for a period of time that what we would have to do was we'd maybe cut we'd have to be reasonably aggressive in our cutting but potentially if the work the opportunity came back the work came back we may have to adopt some freelance support in the short term to be able to support and, and be able to resource clients accordingly and that was certainly something, I mean, I'd never before my time, I'd never really experienced that switching on and off resourcing. The businesses that I'd been involved in had been very much, you know, it's all full-time employees. Whereas actually when you're dependent, highly dependent on discretionary spend and the income can really vary from one month to another, absolutely makes sense to have a bit more flexibility within your cost base. Uh, but that was something I learned quite early on in my in my time there. It makes me think of something you said in the CFO 4.0 podcast about how people just want to deal with other people and that mindset of like establishing relationships and going going beyond just like the financial, you know, the fiduciary responsibilities and actually having relationships with people because it gets easier to understand what they want and and that they're more than just, you know, a number on a spreadsheet. And so I'm wondering, so I it sounds like that was a very impactful time for you to understand something like that. It's really important to understand people so that people also feel understood. Because if you're the finance person and it's like the computer says no because the numbers just don't work, that might be the right answer. But ultimately, if you're wanting to get the best out of people and they, and, and they don't feel understood and they don't feel that you really get them or you're really listening to them, you might have the, it's great, you've got the right answer, but actually you've got a disgruntled member of staff, you've got someone who's not really wanting to build a relationship with you and they're going to be happy. Whereas actually, the answer may be the same, but if the person feels that you've really taken time to understand their world and really listen to them, they might not like the answer, but they'll understand it far more and they'll respect you far more. And, that, and that's where that trust and collaboration is really, really gets built. I 100% agree with that. And I'm curious, having stepped out into your current role, how do you look at the industry or look back at the industry or look into the industries you work with, how that culture is or is not present? The culture can be more the culture of... So what I mean is like the people first culture is often something companies aspire to. However, like what you're seeing, like taking people into consideration, even if the answer is no, making them feel heard. That's not something that's very popular in the industry. So how do you, what's your perspective on that? Or how do you lead around that? I think very often, so in a lot of the conversations I have with clients from a coaching perspective is when people are holding back and they're maybe struggling to have challenging conversations, maybe with staff members, 
peers or even their CEOs, very often they're making it about themselves and they're like, there might be fear that's holding them back. There might be, I want to avoid conflict. I'm not going to have a difficult conversation. I'm not really going to raise this thing that I'm, that's frustrating me. And that, that doesn't, that's not great because ultimately what happens is they build up frustration they might tell everyone they're all they're okay and they're happy but ultimately underlying you can see that they're frustrated and the other person can see they're frustrated but we often hold back people often hold back from that because of thinking about themselves they want to stay safe they want to avoid they're fearful of having conflict however if they can switch it around and have a bit more empathy for the other person to try and understand okay where are they coming from i might want to have i've got this frustration Try and understand their world a bit more. And when you can do that and you make it less about yourself, you're far more likely to open up and have those honest conversations. And when people feel listened to and feel that you're genuinely trying to understand them, they're far more likely to reciprocate and they're far more likely to create more of that trust and be have create more of that open relationship. So you think that that's the answer really is just it, it has to start from the leadership of just being because I know you've talked about this before about vulnerability and talking about your failures, because if you're hiding your failures, the people that report to you are just going to get this false perception that, oh, well, you're walking on water over here. You've never like had any issues. So just I'm curious about that vulnerability from like the leadership position. Absolutely. I mean, it is so true. It's, it's the more you can be open about the reality, you know, what? It, and it's not about like saying you failed for the sake of saying it. It's just being open and honest. And when you've got challenges, when stuff's not worked in the way that you want it, be open about it. If you've got a difficult situation at work or you're finding it stressful, be open about it because the more you're open about it, it gives other people permission to be open as well. Whereas actually, if you're finding work straight, if you've got people who you work with who maybe who are in your team and they're finding, finding work stressful, they're finding work that you know, it's a pressure environment that they're really struggling with. They might be holding back from saying that because they're thinking, okay, this is maybe career limiting. If I start being more open about this, I really want to progress my career. I don't want to let anyone know that I can. I'm not up to the task. However, if you start opening up around that, all of a sudden allows them to realize, well, that's okay. We're all human. And actually, I don't need to put up this front. I don't need to try and kid on and pretend that I'm someone and, and I'm completely infallible. There's nothing can touch me. Whereas actually we are all human and actually people having those challenges. Not only do you want to encourage, I'm not saying you want to encourage people to have them, clearly not, but you want to encourage people to be open about them. And the more you do that, the more trust and collaboration that is created and it also you know, they are far more likely to really be invested in the business because they feel understood. They feel someone's going to have their back when things are being more challenging, as opposed to people maybe think, right, you know, they're struggling. They, they, they feel scared to admit it. They feel scared to open up. And then what maybe happens, maybe they, if it's really bad, they burn out or they, they end up just leaving because they've been scared to have that open and honest conversation. I do think it requires not just leaders to encourage it, because I think it's more than that. I think they almost need to they need to be living it and almost be leading by example through doing and being as opposed to just seeing. And is there a time in your career 
when you've felt insecure about your direction, like did you feel at any point before becoming a CFO that you wish you had changed careers? I think probably very often. I mean, I can't specifically think of any example, but I suspect there was probably very often an element of imposter syndrome quite often would come up whereby, you know, there'd be times where I'd be thinking, right, okay, I've made it through. I've made it through this budget process, right? Yeah, I'm I'm through that, or I've made it through that month end where I've yeah, it's all good. I can go, I can move on to the next. So I suspect there was probably quite a lot of imposter syndrome when I was progressing into new roles, where I was like maybe going into a board meeting and having conversations with people who were maybe quite a bit older than me, and and almost getting through that. And thinking, right, okay, am I in a position to challenge them? Am, am I, do I really know what I'm talking about? Are people going to really listen to me? And times sort of questioning, questioning that. But I guess the more I did that, the more I started to gain, gain confidence, the less I started to feel like an imposter in, in certain situations. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's probably many instances throughout the years where I've absolutely questioned myself. I suspect there's probably not many people who, I suspect if you're not questioning yourself, are you really progressing in the way that you want? And it's a wee bit like, you know, that the whole ter- the term that I've just raised there around imposter syndrome. My view is it's not, I mean, although it has a lot of negative connotations around it, I actually don't think it's a bad thing because if you're never feeling like an imposter, if you're never taking yourself out of your comfort zone, then are you really progressing? Now, I'm not saying that everyone wants to progress. For me, if I'd never felt like an imposter, I'd have probably got frustrated that I'm not really progressing in my career and fulfilling my potential. But if you're quite ambitious and really want to progress up the career ladder in whatever way that is for you, I think there's always going to be times where you're feeling like an imposter. But it's about when, when that comes up, how do you respond? What was it like to finally become CFO? I'll call it like when I was, I suppose my sort of senior, first senior job was was finance director of um, when when I was working in the marketing um, for for Ogilvy. I mean, it felt it felt good. It felt like I had really achieved something quite good in my career. I guess it was probably one of the things that I'd thought about when I started back at university, or maybe the on the um, on the career path qualifying as a chartered accountant. And it definitely felt good. I mean, it, I was working in an organisation where I really enjoyed it. They were really nice people. It was quite supportive. But I, there was probably an element of, right, I've got here. I need to prove that I can deliver on it. So it's like, great. I feel really good. I feel really confident. I feel I'm pleased with myself. But let's not get too excited. Let's not get too complacent. I don't want any complacencies. I've got to deliver. I've got to show them that they've made, you know, they've they've backed me, they've picked me. I've got to show I don't want to disappoint them. So I think that that I think that sort of natural cautiousness quite steps in. You have you give yourself an opportunity to celebrate for a period of time, but then naturally cautious to, I don't want to get I don't want to get my get too not get too excited about it, but you know, I just want to make sure that my feet are firmly on the ground. I love what you have to say about imposter syndrome and how like it's good, like the good side of it, because it's like, it's so true that if you're just going to think that you're the best things in sliced bread, like, are you really going to like take any of those risks or, or like do do anything, you know, that's going to push the envelope forward? So I, I love that. I am curious though, 
I know in your LinkedIn profile video that you've mentioned that you've learned from many mindset challenges yourself. And that's something that like you try and communicate to um, your clients, whether it's like a lack of confidence, lack of clarity, imposter syndrome, so on and so forth. What are some of those personal experiences you've had? I know you talked about imposter syndrome, but if it's maybe like procrastination or bringing your true self to work, is there something that has happened specifically to you that really resonated? And it was, I'm looking for like more of a negative situation that you felt then shaped you and how better suited you to be equipped to talk about that yourself. I was I was presenting to some quite senior people and the presentation didn't quite go as well as I had thought and I was there was a lot of probably a lot of chatter in my mind about what had happened. I was really making it quite a lot about me and I was probably a bit catastrophizing and thinking, okay, is this going to, I don't, I don't get an opportunity to present to those people that often, is this going to have an impact on my career? And again, coming back to that thing about certainty, always being quite definitive about, right, okay, well, that wasn't a good result. I remember at the time, like, try really, really thinking, get being very much in my head, And when I started to reflect a bit more, having that realization that actually they probably haven't really thought that. Like they have, I've been giving all the airplay in my mind, but they haven't been giving probably very little airplay in their mind. They were seeing many people. There was a full day of budget presentation, or I think it was two or three days of budget presentations. And I was on, you know, one of probably 15 different companies that were you know was part of a larger group i think realizing that actually it wasn't all about me because we very often get in our minds and realize that oh we're worth making all about ourselves but actually realizing that it wasn't about me and starting what i was seeing before but starting to try and empathize more with okay i think they were a bit short with me and one and one of i think our present but the presentation that i'm specifically talking about it was at the end of the first day and it, as i say it didn't go quite as well and i think they were a bit shorter in terms of some of the responses and i went away and i i started started to reflect a bit more and just when I started to reflect on that and, and thinking about okay why did it what was coming up for them what what maybe caused them to respond in, in a way that I was slightly surprised at and I started to try and put myself a bit in their shoes it just made things seem so much lighter and that's definitely something I would say it's simple but definitely not easy to do that because it is you get caught up in situations and you start thinking about right okay in subsequent situations and you can get caught up in it and think about okay what are the implications it's not gone the way I wanted what are they going to and you catastrophize everything in your mind but the more you can make it and start to get out of your own head and start to think about potentially what are they making it mean it just for me is definitely something thing that I've really carried forward in my mind and and again I still absolutely perfect at it by any means it's, it's an ongoing journey but it, it definitely when I think about it that way and I know when I have conversations with clients around that I can see sometimes see light bulb moments and I can st- I can definitely feel that from the conversations that I have it makes things feel that bit lighter because it's really about in most instances it's really about supporting the best is supporting your boss, supporting the CEO or whatever 
it is. And actually, when you put yourself more in their mind or more in the mind of the business, you're naturally coming out of your own mind. And you launched Schaefer Coaching in January 2019, describing yourself as a result-focused executive coach who helps clients push through their fears, insecurities, and challenges them to achieve their potential and become the best version of themselves personally and professionally. What spurred the decision to go down that path? I mean, I think it was very much from my time in the corporate world where I had realized that once it gets to a certain level, I'd always been of the view that actually you progress up the corporate ladder and it's all about technical ability, particularly in finance, it's all about technical ability. And once you get to, and I realised that actually once you get to a certain level, the technical ability is almost taken as gra- taken for granted. It's the, the, you know, CEOs, if you're working alongside CEOs, the chances are they won't really know that much about what you do and how you do it. But it's just taken as read that you're going to be able to, you're going to be capable, you're going to be competent in the more technical aspect of things. A lot, when it gets to that level, the bigger challenges become, but how you, how you showing up as a person, how you are, when challenges arise, how are you responding to them? When obstacles come in your way, like what are you, are you, are you moving back from them or are you actually just adopting more of a growth mindset and seeing, right, this is an opportunity to learn and grow? And not only does that have you become more like solution focused, it allows you to actually move forward and accept the, re- the situation. It also helps you to establish good relationships with your CEO, for example, because I think like sometimes you're not always, you're not sometimes, there's going to be many instances where you're not going to have the answer. And actually your CEO doesn't necessarily care whether you've got the answer. They just want confidence that you know that you're going to be able to find the answer. You're going to have some sort of solution. And I think this is where probably a lot of senior finance people might find it more challenging if they are. And I certainly know I struggled with that. And certainly through conversations I've had with a lot of people is you feel that you have to know all the answers. Someone will say, your CEO will say something to you in a, in a confident, authoritative way. And it'll be in a way that you're telling yourself, I need to know this. When actually, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. And there, there's, and and I think, and there's something that I, I've heard in the past talking about is like, what, are you focused on proving yourself to others? Or are you focused more on improving yourself? And there's quite a distinct difference because when we're all, when we're focused very much on proving ourselves, then we're less likely. We're only going to be taking on things that we re- really feel comfortable doing, and we know the answer to. Whereas actually, if it's about learning and improving ourselves, we we're, we're going to be open. We're going to be accepting that we don't necessarily know all the answers. And let's be honest: the higher you get up, when you get to that senior finance level, you're not going to know all the answers. You're just not. Even although someone might say something in a manner that almost they expect that you will, they probably deep down don't know the answer. Won't won't know the answers and won't be expecting you to. So I think it's about being able to let go of that. On your website, SchaeferCoaching.com, you wrote, Spending time with my family is very important to me. 
coaching has helped me realize what I really value in life. This includes having a healthy work-life balance so that I am there and fully present for my clients, but also able to spend quality time with my family doing the things we love. And a lot of this involves outdoor pursuits, including climbing hills and mountains and participating in different outdoor adventures activities, some of which require me to push through and face my fears. Can you talk to us about some of the challenges you faced on these various outdoor adventure activities? Is there a specific moment that you felt particularly challenge that was particularly challenging for you? I mean, there's one example that immediately comes to mind is my children quite like climbing and I'm, I feel quite comfortable doing like hill climbing and maybe not so steep mountains. I find that quite challenging. But one thing I quite struggle with is heights when I'm quite high not on the ground level and we've got I mean I don't know if it's you've got something called similar in the US called Go 8 which is whereby you just are climbing up like obstacle courses where you end up going quite high and you go down zip wires and things like that and we I was in holiday we were in holiday in Greece quite a few years ago and we went to one of those obstacle courses and I didn't really I was like getting quite nervous about doing it I, I thought it, it was very much taking me out of my comfort zone and I knew that I'd really want to do it but basically I almost got, I got steamrolled into doing it by my children and before I knew it and they told me that we were doing we were doing the kids one and what happens with this is you get locked in so you get locked in with your harness and once you're in you can't get out and quickly I realized I said is this the kids one and they were like no it's not this is the adults one we were doing and I was quite quickly out of my comfort zone but I knew I, I didn't have any way back but it was pretty enjoyable and my wife still laughs at some of the videos of me when I was going across and shaking like that and getting quite nervous but yeah that's definitely quite a good example of that. And on the CFO 4.0 podcast you talked about the story we tell ourselves that we're not good at something and how the growth mindset is about accepting this but challenging yourself to try something in order to get better. Is there something that has happened in your life that you approached with this growth mindset where you failed tremendously but learned from the most? When I decided to leave the corporate world, I worked for a technology startup as a CFO for a period and then I left that and then I started doing consultancy and coaching. And that certainly, you know, I was moving from having quite a long career in the corporate world whereby it was very much, there was a lot of certainty and uh, there was certainty in what I was doing but there was also certainty in terms of my income coming in whilst at the time the 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 you know, I didn't always, it was hot. There was quite a lot of pressure and I didn't always enjoy that pressure. There was comfort in the certainty. But when you go and you go and work for yourself, quite a lot of which you're doing something very different, it feels quite scary and it feels quite, it feels very different. And, and certainly it wasn't as if I had loads of clients immediately coming, knocking on my door and I had that immediate certainty. I certainly didn't. But I, I think what I realised was that actually it's a long journey. It's a long journey of pursuing this. And actually, it's not just a professional journey. It's also a personal journey. And it's about, you know, actually being, trying to get to that place where you can almost sort of be truly content and actually and not happy, I'll be happy when. Because I always had this mentality, I'll be happy when I get the next job. I'll be happy when I achieve this. 
I'll be happy when I make earning X amount of money. And that's never really happened. Just And I think probably a lot of people can relate to that. And actually what I've been really working on throughout my journey, working with people, but also you know working on myself, is actually trying to realize that the circumstances are not the things that make us happy or not happy. It's our response to them. And that classic like, okay, is it a failure or is it a learning? And realizing that actually, okay, when things, when I first started on the coaching and consulting journey, things weren't easy. And they're not always easy. You know, it goes up and down and there's not, you don't have that certainty. But realizing that actually it is a journey and you need to embrace the things that aren't that going well because actually it's easy to be happy when things are going well but that's not true contentment whereas actually if you can be grateful and happy irrespective of 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 the way things are irrespective of the outcomes then life becomes a lot more pleasant and there's a book which which i found incredibly powerful which really talks about to that which talks to that is called man's search for meaning and it's by someone called Viktor Franco and it's he was a prisoner of war in a Nazi concentration camp and he basically you know obviously incredibly difficult circumstances that very very few people will be able to relate to but he took the view that it wasn't the circumstances that would dictate you know they they didn't have they could control many things but they couldn't control the way he thought and his view was that that was the thing that kept him alive and when you hear about something like that for me that's incredibly powerful that's incredibly inspirational it's incredibly humble and it really shows that actually if someone in such dire circumstances like that can do it, well then actually we all can. Special thanks to Tony for being on the show. You can find him on LinkedIn if you'd like to say thanks yourself. Remember to leave a five-star review if you enjoyed the podcast. We'll see you next time on Beyond the Budget, a podcast from Paddle Studios dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.